I always like to sit at bars because I want that interaction. I want to know what products they're getting excited by because then that in turn leads me to understand what's going on in the industry and to be really at the heart and the pulse of the trends that are coming forward. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chats. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am speaking with Dawn Davies. Dawn is the head buyer at the Whiskey Exchange and its sister company, Speciality Drinks, which is one of the UK's biggest online drinks retailers and the biggest supplier of premium spirits to the UK on trade. On this episode, we discuss Dawn's early career as a sommelier and wine buyer, her inroad into spirits and cocktails, and her newfound love of rum and whiskey. Dawn shares some tips on how to get a customer with wine, and we discuss how London's bar and restaurant scene has evolved over the past couple of decades. If you know Dawn, you no doubt already love her. If you don't know Dawn, you're about to fall in love with her. Enjoy. Hello, Dawn Davies. Hello, Tristan. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Oh, it's so good to have you on. Um, I'm really pleased we could do this, if not together, virtually, which is almost as good. Um, sans, you know, tasting almost, a couple of drinks. Almost, not quite a, as good. Yeah, I mean, we could have made some cocktails or, or drank some wine or something um, at the same time, but we'll have to save that for another. Have you seen me make a cocktail, Tristan? <laughs> Actually, like, I'm a disaster <laughs> cocktail maker. <laughs> really? It, it's Yeah, there's, there's a reason I drink in bars. There's a big reason. It's because I'm the worst cocktail maker in the planet. I can make a daiquiri now and a Negroni. Well, daiquiri's not that easy, actually. Pina Colada's challenge. Yeah, I, daiquiri. Really? Yeah, well, I know Simon Difford was the first one that kind of got me onto this. Um, he used to have a daiquiri challenge when you'd go around to his home stroke bar um, down in Bermondsey. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it is one in the same place, or at least it was. And he'd have a daiquiri challenge and it, would, it didn't matter who you were, because he used to have a lot of people coming over and doing filming there and, um, you know, sort of daytime events or whatever, um, product shots. And he, if, it, if anyone was interested, he'd make, he'd make a daiquiri with them and they, they'd make one and he'd make one. And then they'd sort of taste them and decide which was the best. And it, for him, the daiquiri was this sort of, um, you know, this, this incredible cocktail that could be very easily changed based on the proportions and the method of the production. Do you double strain it? What glass do you serve it? And all that kind of thing. It's, for me, it's what rums. So mm. Mitch, my partner in crime with rum, or we, we always do like a, a classic sort of aged rum and then a splash of Agricole or Claran. Nice. Just to give it a bit of funk. I, I don't think there's a rum cocktail that doesn't benefit from a little bit of that sugarcane juice spirit, like just layered in there, right? I don't think there's anything that doesn't benefit <laughs> from sugarcane spirit. <laughs> Christmas dinner, uh, yeah, all of it. Um, Everything. It's, uh, well, that's a good tip for a daiquiri, though, actually. Just a little splash of, of Agricole or Clarin or something in there just to funk it, for sure. Um, but yeah, yeah that, anyway, the only reason sure. I can say is I'm just surprised that you can't... So you can't make cocktails, but Negroni and daiquiri you think you're all right with. Yeah, I think so. Like, I have... I think, so I, I did have sort of Ryan, I bought Ryan Chetty's book mm. um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to try some. And I, I got quite into it, but I just, don't, I'm, I'm kind of one of those people that just throw, I'm, I'm a main course cook. So like, I just throw things in, you know, the discipline required to make cocktails is beyond my comprehension. I'm not focused enough. Yeah. yeah, no, I can't follow any recipes. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the golden rule of bartending, really. It's like, just stick to the ratios and everything will be fine um, once you start deviating. Yeah, that, that's just not yeah. in me. <laughs> yeah. 
Negroni, Negroni is a lot more um, forgiving, I think, as a as a cocktail. Like you can you can mash but up I those recipes. But I think the bartenders mess up the most. Do you think so? Yeah, I mean, like I only I only have Negronis in bars. I trust the bartenders of the bar. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't really order yeah. them anymore. I, I I prefer Boulevardier. You know, the kind of bourbon version of the Negroni. I think it's Ooh, a better yes. drink. Yeah, because mm. gin gets lost a little bit in the Negroni. It's fighting against. I mean, it's fighting against Campari and Sweet Vermouth. They are a couple of powerful players, and gin, especially depending on what gin you use, because some of them, let's face it, don't taste a lot like gin these days. <laughs> well. Most gins don't taste like gin these days, but don't get me off on that sidetrack because that'll, that'll be a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> Why doesn't gin taste like gin? In fact, we did do that podcast already way back in season one. I had Craig Harper and Jake Berger on. and we, uh, Yeah. And, oh, uh, my goodness. You can imagine how Trouble. that went. Trouble. <laughs> you don't need to imagine how that went because it is one yes. of our past episodes. You can go back no. and listen. And... Um, yeah, we definitely got on the topic of why gin doesn't taste like gin anymore and is, what does that mean for us and, you know, how upset are we about that? And that's the thing, you know, again, I think that's why a lot of people mess them up because they're putting in gins that don't have enough juniper punch yep. to to come cut through the rest. So, yeah. Well, what people don't... Re- I say I'm very good at critiquing cocktails. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the thing. You know what you don't like? That I mean, that's kind of the route to <laughs> yeah. getting to understand what you do like about anything, though, in a way, isn't it? It's understanding what you don't like. Mm. Um, so look, it's a kind of like iterative trial and error process, I guess. You kind of, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that. Right, that only leaves this. That must be what I like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's 100% true. And I think it's true, you know, like, and that's why I always say to people when they kind of come to me and talk, you know, how do I learn more? I'm like, taste, 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 taste. Mm. Don't tell me you don't like something. Actually, Craig's a very good one for telling me he doesn't like something. And then I have to prove it to him that he does like it. <laughs> yeah. It's good to have but a challenge. But I just find the right liquid. Like that, isn't it? So, and I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I think most people that work in bars who appreciate spirits, cocktails, wine, whatever, when they are faced with a guest who says, oh, I don't like whiskey. You're like, oh, okay, that's like a red rag to a bull. You don't like whiskey. All right. Let, let me let me let me show let me present you some whiskeys that taste dramatically different from one another. And then Please sit there and tell me you still don't like whiskey. Because if you still don't like whiskey, that means you don't like a lot. Okay, there's a lot in that category. And, yeah. and the same goes for rum, of course, and, and, and all these different spirits. I suppose, actually, gin, at least kind of traditional gin, is one where it didn't used to deviate that much. Ironically, now, of course, it does deviate a lot. And people will say, I like gin, as if it's this sort of catch-all term for one thing. But, of course, there's so many different variations. I don't know why we keep going back to gin, by the way. <laughs> We're stepping on I know. gin a lot well, here. I was in the shop the other day. I know we are so good. I was in the shop yesterday, and someone came up to me and goes, I'd like a botanical gin. And I kind of looked at him, <laughs> and I was like... Okay, I can I can do that. Yeah, easy. <laughs> kind of by just talking to him, I actually realised what he really liked was juniper. <laughs> oh, okay. So I guess maybe some people come sort of prepared with an opening line, and that I guess they think suggests that they have some sort of knowledge on a subject, right? They're yeah. like, right, what am I going to say to this lady that yeah, doesn't make me look so. like a fool? Okay, let's, I think botanical, is that a word that they use with gin? <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. But I'm going to go to a botanical gin. It sounds good. It sounds natural. That'll work. He might have been thinking about that all day. I think he probably was. I think he'd kind of picked up the term somewhere, bless him, you know, and was like, yeah, I like a botanical gin. I was like, I can, I can do that. <laughs> I have some. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh dear. Right. So look, <laughs> let's um, try and put the gin thing on the back burner for a minute. If we have to return to gin, we will. Um, it wasn't really the way this conversation was supposed to go, but you know. Um, I told you we were going rogue quickly. <laughs> we <have> gone rogue <laughs> Just... quick. Yeah. Um, stop derailing it. So um, I was thinking about <laughs> how and when we first met, which I, I reckon was around about eleven years ago, and you i think maybe more maybe. now scarily oh, oh, okay don't 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 do it um you <laughs> were kind of one of the key or most instrumental players in popularizing pearl which was my first bar in london the first bar we opened um because you worked around the corner in a little corner shop uh called <laughs> selfridges and you basically took it upon yourself to just bring people in virtually every night whether they worked at Selfridges or otherwise and some of them by the way quite famous people as well <laughs> a lot of chefs a lot of celebrity chefs I, and um well I mean I obviously need to thank you for that because um Pearl did rather well and it's from thanks to people like you um but um I have such fond memories of that time and meeting you and and you get being so excited about what we were doing and us being so excited about what we were doing yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was one of those, it was kind of just when I was really kind of getting into the, I guess, the proper cocktail bar scene. I still remember that cocktail, which I absolutely loved, which when you were smoking, it was the Zacapa one, mm. and you smoked it. Yeah. I mean, I can still taste that. Yeah, I, and I used to just, I used to go and I used to tell everyone about it. I was like, this is cocktail that I really love. Uh, you know, and it was for me such an eye opener to kind of have that theatre as well um, that that I really loved. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of brought all the elements of things I really adore and kind of put it into one place that I could just sit. That was like five minute walk from my office. Yeah, that was handy. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, for me, I, I loved what you guys did, and it, it was kind of my, I guess, my one of my stepping stones into the kind of a, a cocktail scene which I, you know, really love now, and I spend a lot of time in. Mm. Yeah, because uh, so you, we should say you were um, wine buyer at Selfridges at the time. Although I guess buying spirits as well, or were you just doing wine at that point? Yeah, I was. I was basically the wine and spirits buyer. Yeah. Everything. I was the booze buyer for Selfridges, essentially. So, what does a head buyer actually do, Dawn? So essentially, it sounds very glamorous. Um, in, in theory, we should taste a lot of product, and you know that's all we should do is bring in beautiful products from all over the world. There's a lot of spreadsheets. Um, there's a lot of looking at numbers. There's a lot of doing deals. There's a lot of the boring stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's all about kind of looking at the market, analyzing what's going on out there, looking at sales, looking at stocks, looking working with your supply chain to make sure you're bringing in the product at the right time in the right place. So sounds very glamorous, but in in truth, it's it can be quite. <laughs> I guess there's from a producer's point of view they want you to stock their stuff like the big challenge from that producer's point of view is I've got to get an appointment with the head buyer I've got to get it in front of them I've got to get it it's, so you must be constantly dealing with people trying to get your attention and your time and presumably you don't have enough time and attention for all of them so how do you select who gets to see you um so I get probably over, well, I get over 100 emails a day from suppliers and from prospective suppliers. And first of all, I, you know, I work with a website, so I have to look at visuals. Um, so I have to look about what the bottle looks like. Um, and then I kind of do a little bit of research. I'll have a little sort of look around and see if kind of um, sort of 
what they're doing behind the distillery. I don't just sort of look at it if I think it's just another product that's to be mass produced in a big distillery, you know, whether it's a rum made in Europe or, you know, or someone just buying liquid in. Um, and then if I think there's potential, I call in a sample. Uh, I don't have any meetings before I taste because frankly, if you have to sell your product to me on anything but taste, walk away. Yeah. Um, I, I don't care about marketing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I look at everything. I look at the price. I look at, is that value for money? You know, there's some products I've seen that I, I think have great liquid, but then I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not paying 60 pounds for that product. That's ridiculous. Um, so I'm very much a curator. I'm the gatekeeper for the consumer. And I, you know, I take that sort of quite seriously to the point that people are upset with me when I say that the product's not good enough. Um, I will, if anyone asks me for feedback, I am honest. Um, to a fault you have to be um, and people have come back and they've changed the product based on feedback and actually done a really fantastic job so and I think it's it's always worth worth kind of asking um, but yeah I think that it's it's quite hard but I don't I won't meet anyone uh, there's we have meetings for meetings sake too many people want meetings about nothing um, it's more about them ticking mm. a box than actually actually achieving something and when you have over 400 suppliers and that's suppliers, not brands. Um, yeah, you have to be pretty picky. <laughs> Are there any products that you kind of just don't like, like as in, a, like, you know, entire sort of categories of product and therefore it makes the job quite tricky because you're like, well, okay, I know I need to stock this because it's popular, but I don't really like any of this stuff. I mean, that's probably quite a sort of brutal way of putting it. I'm sure, sure you wouldn't yeah. put it that way. Uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, for sure, you have to. I mean, like, it, the, the stuff I put on that website that I would never drink in a million years, but I know I have to list. Yeah. Uh, but I think you can still curate within mm. a category you don't particularly like. I'm not a massive fan of flavored spiced or flavored rums. I, I, you know, and yeah, it's such either. a boom yeah. at the moment. But within that, there are good products um, out there. So, you know, it's about finding the right products. And oftentimes it's about packaging with some of the categories that we don't particularly love. You've got to look at packaging and think, you know, what, actually that's going to sell based on how that looks. So it's, you've got, as a buyer, you really have to take, I mean, there's a lot of products on that I stock for myself, let's not lie. But, um, you know, a lot of times you are buying stuff that you, you wouldn't drink personally, for sure. Yeah, I guess in the end of the day, it's a balance, isn't it? You you want to curate something that you want to stand by because you think these things are delicious. There's a certain there's a certain subjective element of your personality oh, yeah. to that selection. But on the other hand, you've got a you know a, 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 a website like Whiskey Exchange has to have everything, a bit of everything, you know, to sort of cover the whole market too. Yeah, and I think you know there's some products that are genuinely faulty or genuinely are not good, and you'll you'll you know. A lot of times when I'm sort of talking to the guys, I'll be like, look, it's not my thing, but I can understand why a consumer would like it. So, you know, that's got to be in your head constantly. But it is challenging sometimes because we do have personal preferences. But what I'm doing that's maybe different to how maybe, I don't want to say the average person would taste, but yeah, how the average person would taste is I'm assessing quality. So I'm taking personal preference out of it and looking, is this liquid of good quality, which is slightly different mm -hmm. um, to me looking at a product thing, genuinely just love this product. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They're, no, they're definitely different things. I've got a local cider producer. Um, their product is not good quality, <laughs> but it's great. Like, it, there's something about it. It's magical, yeah. you know? Um, 
but other people may turn their noses up at it because they'll be like, what is this stuff? Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, it's definitely two different things. Um, so let's wind it back. How did you land such a prestigious role like that? And, and we'll get onto what you're doing now, of course, but how did you, what, where's, where's your entry point into the industry and, and, and how do you get a job at Selfridges buying all the wine and spirits? It's so cool. So I've essentially just been super lucky throughout my life. Um, I've kind of fallen into jobs um, and I just, you know, I think it's partly, uh, people always say, oh, how, how have you done what you've done? I was just, uh, just sheer luck and I've worked really hard. Um, but I, I was in a, I worked up in Edinburgh. Um, I was at university there and I worked in a bar there, just this really sort of hotel bar, really tacky. I was just pretty much pouring pints, you know, nothing complicated. But I absolutely loved it. And, you know, I thought to myself, I really want to get into this industry. I stayed on a year after uni. Uh, it was my basically my Guinness drinking fund because my father refused to pay for my Guinness habit. And, you know, we, I was like, okay, I went, I went traveling. Uh, went to this amazing restaurant in Australia called Tetsuya's and I had the most incredible wine experience and I was like I have to do this I have to I have to become a sommelier I, I, this is what I want to do so actually Tetsuya was opening a restaurant in London and I thought to myself well I can be a waitress that should be fine so I walked in you know very posh uh, restaurant in a, in a hotel in London and I was like I would like a job and the guy's like have you got any experience? I was like, I've worked in a bar. He goes, do you know how to carry plates? I'm like, how hard can it be? You know, like, and literally I just bombarded him with just my sheer enthusiasm for wanting to work for them. And, and he goes, okay, well, well, we'll think about it. We don't have a job for you right now. And literally about two months later, he called me back out of the blue and he was like, we'd like you to come work for us. And it was there that I kind of started working with an amazing sommelier called Nabuka Okamura, who pretty much taught me everything. I was just a waitress. And she went to Zuma and I went with her and then she left Zuma and I was the only person that knew the wine list. So they're like, you're a head waitress, would you like to become the head sommelier? I was like, I know nothing about wine, but that would be lovely, thank you so much. <laughs> and kind of my career went from there. I, uh, then Gordon Ramsay um, spotted me, uh, brought me into Boxwood, then Nigel Platzmartin took me into the square in the Ledbury. Um, I ran the library for a couple of years and then just got really just knackered doing 90 hours a week. And so I left and I didn't really have anything to go to. But one of my customers, a guy called Ewan Venters, called me up and said, you know, I'd love you to come and have a chat with me. I hear you don't have a job right now. And I was like, oh, what do you want me to do? Work in the shop itself or just I don't really want to work in the shop itself or just I want to be on the floor. And so I, he interviewed me. I wasn't even listening to the poor man. And he uh, he was like chatting away. You didn't even like, know what you were being interviewed no, for. No, I either. wasn't really listening because I was just being polite because he was one of my customers. And then he suddenly goes, so what do you think? Would you like to be the head buyer of Selfridges? And I was like, huh? And uh, I was like, yeah, that, that sounds lovely. Yeah, great. So just fell into it really. And it was there that I really learned spirits, um, you know, thanks to some amazing people who have... I think, you know, the wine world's incredible and I love the wine world and I always will be a wine person. Um, but I think there's something about the spirits industry that's, they're really, people are so willing to teach you. And, you know, I was super lucky to have people like Dave Brum, who were there to teach me, Bruce from Mauritius, uh, you know, like you guys, all the bartenders that I was speaking to, you, Ryan, you know, all of you spent so much time giving me information and teaching me when I knew absolutely nothing about spirits. Uh, Sakinda, of course, um, who is now my boss. But, yeah. you know, I think I really got passionate about 
spirits there. I, I, I knew about, about them before, you know, as a sommelier you have to. I don't think enough sommeliers know enough about them. Um, same in reverse, I don't, I don't think enough bartenders know enough about wine. Um, I'd like to bridge the two a bit more. Uh, but yeah, it was it was such an exciting yeah. time, and that was when we really kind of I think as department stores, Selfridges, we really kind of took off and did some really amazing things and launched some incredible brands, which I'm hugely proud of still today. So yeah, bit of a pop version of my of my good luck. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. It's such a cool story. So it's the restaurant that you were at when you the first one where you became sommelier. Is that still going? Was it Tetsuya's? Tetsuya's in Sydney, I believe, is still going. Yeah, um, but Mew, the one here, um, shut down pretty quickly. And sadly, it was in a hotel sort of lobby kind of space, and it just didn't work, which was super sad because he still to this day is one of my favourite chefs. That it's just really interesting to sort of hear how you leapfrog from one kind of highly prestigious venue or hotel to another. And I, I've always considered you someone to be very well connected. Um, the fact that you are connected to, or, you know, obviously are very well connected to our industry now, but in the first place, the fact that you were kind of socializing with us in the mixology world and yet also had hands in, in you know, the wine world and in retail and everything um i was I, I was sort of quite admiring of that did you ever kind of set out do you think to kind of establish this a contact book a little black book of, of of names and everything and building these relationships or was it just purely accidental i mean you know like i think for me i i, I came so my background even though i'm english um i grew up in america in America, in the service industry, you're just very upfront, you're forward, you're very polite, you, you're friendly. Uh, which I don't think when I joined the industry back in the day, because I am quite old now, um, was it wasn't just not a style, it was very sort of French or Italian or, you know, like British, very sort of mm. cut down the line, you cannot associate with guests. I mean, I just, I started chatting to the guests, because that's what you do when you go to a table. You, you make friends, you know, that, that's that's what I do in life. I make friends. I make a lot of enemies as well, especially when I tell them their products aren't great. But, uh, you know, I think for me, it, it is about kind of just being super friendly and forward. And and during that, and I got told off by the, the manager for a hospital road. Yeah, Jean-Claude was like, you cannot talk to the guests, Dawn. And funnily from there, I actually brought some customers with me to to Boxwood because they were just like oh hold on there's someone talking to us they're engaging and i think i mean i know i have quite a, a, a small extrovert personality which has probably helped a little bit but i think for me it was it's i've always lived by that model it's not what you know it's who you know because who you know will also give you back what you know and you know i just i, I don't think i ever set out with any idea of having a black book it's kind of not who i am um i just think i've just been really blessed with incredible friendships um, that I've kind of taken through the industry yeah. and has really been a lot of the reasons where I am today, you know, the, as I said before, this industry is incredible um, for supporting each other. And yeah, I just, I think I've just been lucky. I think luck has probably been the, the word I'll use the most in this. <laughs> but definitely not something I ever set out to do. I just, I just, I love people. And you know, when you, you meet interesting people, who are in our industry, whether they're chefs or whether they're your customers or whether they're bartenders or whether they're buyers or producers, of course, you know, like you just get friendships because you're genuinely interested and excited. And then I think a lot of the times 
it's about really listening to people and trying to get as much from them as you can in terms of their knowledge um, and, and what they know. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you're saying about how talking to customers, um, I think that's changed a lot, hasn't it, in, in restaurants now? I mean, I guess there are still the sort of French, very formal style places that you can go to. And all customers are different as well. Some people want conversation. Some people really do want that very kind of like starch, stiff, you know, formal style of service. But in general, I feel like the restaurant industry has moved towards a much more informal style of service where it's more conversational, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, I, I think I always used to say to my staff when I was running the library, you have to be a psychologist. You have to assess in under three seconds what that person wants, how they want it, and, you know, where they're, you know, how much interaction they want. And it's a skill set, and it's something, you know, I think we've, over the years, as a generation, have seen change, and that's exciting. And, you know, now you walk into a bar and people want to talk to you. You know, they, they actively, you know, and I always like to sit at bars. I prefer to sit at bars than at tables, and because I want that interaction. I want to know what the, you know, what the bartender's, you know, what his top tips are, her top tips are, you know, what products they're getting excited by. Because then that, in turn, leads me to understand what's going on in the industry and, and to be really at the heart and the pulse of of the trends that are coming forward and, and through into the industry. And I think that's hugely important. And, and you find that from what customers are talking to you about. I, I spend every Christmas, I spend every weekend in the shops and I spend the last two weeks full time in the shops. And I do that because I want to understand what the customer wants. I think that's why you guys have been successful as well, because you do listen, you know, I know every time I've gone and attended the bars that you've run, you have listened to what I've wanted. Because I think a lot of people don't listen to what the customer's asking. So if I say I want a long, fresh drink, you know, I don't want a short, you know, rich drink. You know, it's not about giving me what you want to give me, it's about you giving me what I want. And then that trust develops and then you know like so where, where I know bartenders yeah, I'll give them and I'll say look I've, I feel like something easy today or whatever but I say you make me what you want when I when I have that trust go go for it you know and I think that's really key is building that and that's how you build that ongoing relationship you know with the customer you have to be listening and you have to be responding and you have to be kind of really kind of understanding what they're asking and sometimes it's not clear that's, that's not me i think it's a challenging conversation sometimes for bars to have or bar operators like bartenders even um because oftentimes there's a concept in place you know there's a you know this is how we want to do it we want to be a destination venue we want to be known for this or that and you know we want our customers to experience something quite specific when they arrive in our venue the music is at this volume the lighting's like this the furniture looks like that these are the drinks we serve these are the snacks we serve this is the uniform we wear and this is our style of service and it you know it's often very important for a brand to you know be very aware of what those you know what that looks like um and to you know not deviate from it too much because it may confuse customers as to what that brand represents um and not only that but possibly confuse staff as well all oh, right one minute one minute we're doing it this way next minute we're doing it that way so then to sort of ask for them to say right we well, need to be adaptable because this customer wants that and this wants something different 
and to listen to the guest and to react, it can be a challenge, right? Because you're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to hold fast with these values that represent the brand? Or am I supposed to be a chameleon that can change and, and do things differently depending on the need of a customer? But I think you can still do that within a brand, you know, and, and I think it, it's, it's how you then manipulate and when i use that word I, I use it in brackets the customer so you know like for example if someone comes in and and says you know what i want you know i like this type of drink and you don't have exactly that type of drink as long as you've heard that's what they like you will be able to find something if you're a good enough bar or you're have a good enough wine list or you've got mm. a good enough selection in your shops you'll be able to find something and as long as, and actually the key is not just that it's the key that the staff are trained it's the training of the staff that's the that, that's the big issue and you know once they have that confidence in the products that they have then they will be able to work within that framework of a brand and really you know kind of get to see I, I did a wine list for a bar the other day and we sat there and I said you know these are the kind of touch points you need um, you know and then you have everything so if you you may not have a Chablis but you have this and this that can act as a Chablis or you, you may not have like a, a Zinfandel, but this could be a Zinfandel. So it's about giving that knowledge behind the products to allow you to have that sort of flexibility within what the customer's asking. And I think, you know, any good bar or restaurant will have that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you can create a brand that, although has its own sort of unique style, um, still is you know not so niche that as so as to alienate ninety percent of customers by not offering the things that people generally want, right? I mean, like when we did um, Whistling Shop, um, you know, it was heavily themed towards sort of Victoriana. Uh, you know, it looked very old fashioned, like an old Victorian pub. Um, everyone dressed that way. The music was a lot of the time sort of orientated that way, but you know we didn't just serve drinks that people drank in Victorian times. You know, we basically had a cocktail menu that was broad in its styles. It covered everything from like sours to fizzes, Collins's, you know, uh, stirred down brown cocktails, beers, wines. And th th even though the names and sometimes mm -hmm. the descriptions might have suggested that these were all sort of cut from that same Victorian cloth. In actual fact, there was a drink there to satisfy everyone's need. Yeah. It was just important that the staff knew which of those drinks sort of fill, fulfilled each of the different purposes. And I think that's kind of what you did at Black Rock as well. You gave people those categories to be able to understand, okay, if I like this, I, they may not have the exact whiskey I want, but they'll have that flavor camp or that idea. And you know, the staff were able to say, okay, if you like that, then this is what you kind of want to try. So I think it is just being able to have that flexibility within what you do, um, but just having, and, and you know, and that's where the industry has to step up a little bit and be willing to pay better for the staff and to retain them and to, you know, kind of take care of the staff and not make them work 9,099 hours. Yeah, I think that's where we as an industry have to get much better because if you have that and you're able to keep retain those staff, then you will give customers better experiences for sure. There's just so much value in it. Um, you know, it's it's strange because a lot of the time you look at wages as sort of basic economics. Well, if I pay more, then it's going to cost me more. But, you know, when you start factoring in the cost of recruitment and the cost of training and the 
the value of having a workforce that are motivated and committed and happy, you know, at home and at work because they're getting paid a sensible wage. The, the opposite is true. Yeah. You're actually getting better value by paying that little bit more. And in the end, every time you employ someone, especially in this market right now, you end up paying more anyway. So, you know, give those people that have been loyal to you that opportunity to grow and develop within your own business and it will reward you tenfold. And I think it, it's so important. Um, and, and I think, you know, the industry has to take a big hard look at itself, especially at the moment when we just don't have the staffing <laughs> at all. <laughs> Um, and think about how we want to move forward you know this could be a way of moving forward and 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 actually creating an industry that is able to bring people in um that we normally maybe wouldn't uh you know i think that's key so i think you know we've got to rethink the industry full stop i mean trunk should be illegal frankly um if that's open to so much abuse it's not even funny so yeah 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 There's a lot there. It's yeah. Well, it's. I mean, it's. You kind of need times like these in order for a bit of a refresh, right? And and a kind of close, honest, hard look at how the way things work and how easily they can come apart at the seams, right? Um, I mean, because you know, it's obviously staffing is a major crisis at the moment um, in hospitality. But then you know, the the number of places that have closed as a result of the last two years just because everything was on a knife edge you know those those margins were so tight and it only needed a little kind of flick in one direction and and um, you know the, everything's sort of unsustainable at that point yeah and you know and i think we we need to build an industry that's sort of able to be a, you know build for a, a future whatever that future looks like you know, and i think that that's so key and it, it, it is credit to our industry how resilient we have been um and especially you know my my love and all my heart goes out to all the bars and restaurants out there that have had such a tough time. Um, you know, really, you know, everything we can do to support you, we will. And and I think that's so key that we have a strong foundation of people so that actually when you have hit hit walls like this, that we have the things in place to, you know, and I think the Drinks Trust and, and people like that have done a, a great job in, in trying to support the industry and everyone that's moving forward within it. So. You know, all credit to everyone out there that has survived. Um, those of you who haven't, there is plenty out there still to be taken and, and done. You know, we can move forward in a in a really strong way. I feel um, in the next in the next few years. Talking about supporting places, where have you been eating and drinking uh, recently since everything sort of reopened? Where were, actually, where, where were the first places that you sort of were like, I need to get back there? I missed it so much. Um, like trailer happiness, <laughs> just because I was like, I need a daiquiri <laughs> that I don't make. Uh, and of course, you know, I really want to support Sly, especially after all the floods as well. You know, he took a double whammy of pain um, in that. Yeah. Um, I love, you know, I'm always a big fan of the Connor, the Coburn, um, like Trade or the Black Book, as it's now known, um, because I love good wine. So drinking there, eating at Kabot. Um, yeah, there's so many places, but actually there's so many places I haven't, you know, been able to get back to yet, which I'm still sort of trying to kind of get get over there and, and see, I'm, I'm missing quaint big time. I'm hoping Eric gets to reopen soon. Um, as an artisan, yeah, I, I mean, like for me, it's just is Eric not is Eric not open at the moment? No, is, no, they basically they've had a bit of a nightmare. Momo's basically closed, so they're they're trying to find a new site uh, or to take on that site again 
but with the new landlords but it's all a bit of a mess but hopefully 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 he'll open soon because I think that's just a, such a terrific bar um, of course supporting Ryan at uh, Lioness and and super well super Lion, but you know like seeing what they get those guys are doing restaurants I mean I eat out a lot I, I love food um, I'm very excited to have the library open again hopefully soon um, Trompette is a fantastic restaurant in Chiswick. There's so many, I could just keep talking for the next uh, ever after. I've been spending a bit of time down <laughs> ever after. Uh, but yeah, no, there's... and I'm, I'm like literally writing them down <laughs> as you go. <laughs> um, Taylor, of course, go see Monica. Um, but I, I think there's so many great places, and so many places I haven't been to yet, which I kind of and I do have a tendency to get very attached to certain bars because you know I make friends there and you have these amazing friendships and you want to support yeah. the people that you love. Uh, but you know, definitely, I need to. I, I I do try as best I can to kind of make a point of trying to visit something new, um, maybe once or twice a month, and just because I am out, as I said, about three times a week. Uh, so trying to kind of get get around and see things and just do things and it's so important for me because it's as I say it's where I get a lot of my inspiration from is what the bar guys are doing um, so yeah I want and I want to support I genuinely do want to support the industry of course what about um, internationally what are your sort of what are some of your favorite cities or cuisines or you know drinking capitals from around the world I mean I guess like most of us you haven't been doing a lot of traveling recently but is there any way you're looking particularly to get back to for, for that? I was meant to go to New York before all this lockdown I haven't been to New York since I lived there when I was a kid and I haven't been back since and I'm desperate to get there in DC because DC I grew up in and um, apparently the food scene over there has changed immensely so I'm super excited to kind of go see see what's happening over there um you know, so many places in Europe. I had a great experience in Paris. Uh, I love Paris. I think there's some really nice things going on there. Guys at the Red Door do a fantastic job. They, you know, this was a, they, when I went to Paris last. I have a, a favorite restaurant in Paris, which I just said to Ryan's going over to Paris, and he was like, "Here or here?" I was like, "Go to Juveniles. Don't stop. Go to Juveniles. It's one of my favorite restaurants in the world." Um, but I, I literally had a, a long lunch, and I wanted to go see the guys at Red Door, so I went across. And they'd had a nightmare. They'd had a they'd had a problem with their plumbing and the toilets. And literally, they were so lovely to me. I just sat, stood outside. They just brought me cocktails. I was like, "This is this is my idea of heaven." Uh, I love traveling. Traveling is, I think, what what gives me the most kind of excitement. And and that's what I really I miss people and and traveling. I think those are the two things that I really got impacted by mentally, actually, um, over lockdown. I think we've all had our, our mental challenges over the last kind of couple of years. And definitely for me, those were the two things. I'm the biggest hugger in the world. I mean, can you imagine telling me not to hug people? <laughs> like, sorry, really? <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, like I, I've missed going to see the producers, actually. That's, I think, something I've really missed. And I was so fortunate, I'm going to mention it now, to go to Barbados two weeks ago. And get out and see all the distilleries out there and yes you were in Barbados a couple of weeks ago weren't you yeah I was yeah. and I made sure everyone knew it <laughs> <laughs> but incredible you know and, oh, I bet and, that was great because that's proper travel right that's proper like, travel you know that's not yeah. just like oh I'm you know I'm, I'm kind of you know going to a European city which is yeah. great of course but like Barbados that's that's travel right yeah yeah absolutely and you know like for me just to get there and see. I think you can't really understand something properly in terms of production or in terms of vineyard or whatever you're looking at in the drinks industry without visiting it 
and, and for me that's like where I get and I the poor people I get so geeky and like and I'm asking all these questions random ra random questions uh, you just see them going oh why do we let her in why do we let her in but you know it's for me it's so so exciting and we took um, three amazing journalists with us which was fantastic and we had just the best time I'm not going to tell you it was a hundred percent a work trip <laughs> there may have been a few pool, poolside beers and daiquiris <laughs> It's never a hundred percent work in travel in this industry, I don't think. Um, but that's that's the way we like it. But yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, you go, you visit a distillery, and I have done hundreds. I think about four hundred and fifty. And doing I am all the books. so jealous. Uh, yeah, of you. and and you every time every time you you line up a distillery visit, you're like, I wonder what this is going to be. I mean, sometimes you, you know a lot about a distillery before you go there, but oftentimes you're like, I wonder, you know, what's going to be interesting about this place? Is it going to be tough to write about it? Um, you know, because there's not really that much going on or it's too similar to another one. And then when you get there, you're like, there's so much here. There's, you know, whether it's history or a production side of it or it's the characters that make the thing or it's the way that it tastes. And you are never short of words coming out of a place, you know, having just visited it. And it's, it's one of the things that I've loved doing since my early days as a bartender and still think it's so important and rewarding to do it now. Um, and of course, we can do it again now, now that the, sort of the travel's opened up a little bit. And also you meet the people behind the, the liquid, uh, you know, and I, and I look at some of the people that I just think are just incredible, uh, you know, in the industry. and. You know, you, you start talking to them and then that's it, you know, like people like Emma Walker and, and you know, all the guys, Ali and um, yeah. the guys at the Diageo stable, you know, you start talking to them, you're like, there's so much to learn and, and, yeah. and sort of understand and things. And, and and that's so exciting. You know, I remember, like, I haven't been to, to visit Lorena Vasquez at Zacapa, but just talking to her, I was like, you were just the most lovely human being ever. Yeah. And then she's like going on about this like, so biochemistry and all this, and I don't understand any of it, but it's so interesting. <laughs> she's and, amazing. And that's so exciting. She's yeah, incredible. She is an I adore her. Force of nature. Her. Yeah, she's just. I, I I've met her quite a few times over the years, and including once in um, Guatemala. I was actually very lucky. In fact, it was not long after Pearl opened. We managed to, because I used to work for Diageo many years ago, never got to Guatemala on the payroll. I remember, Tristan, yeah. I remember. And then um, when, when, after Pearl's success, um, we sort of started, uh, you know, getting access to some of these trips. And um, Tom and I, my business partner, went out to Guatemala. We were there with Tim Phillips and a bunch of the Australian guys and girls. That was some trip. They flew us around on helicopter um because everything because it's so mountainous there like you can't drive because it takes you like five six hours along these like hilly roads and also it's a bit dangerous um like dangerous as in driving but also just <laughs> danger danger yeah. danger and um so they just they just hired helicopters for a week and flew us around the place um and yeah you get to go to that aging facility which is above the clouds i mean it's not just marketing uh that whole thing it's it's true it's very high up you you're so lucky i mean i, I love your books uh, totally you know I, i'm a big fan I, I buy them all 
Um, oh, thanks. And you know, I read the rum, the rum one the other day. I was going through it again because it's been a, it's a, been a really good source of kind of knowledge for me because rum's been something I've become hugely passionate about, but mm. have had very little knowledge. Um, and so you know, I was doing all, all the work from when we were reclassifying rum and, and things like that. And you know, I was just reading all your stuff on the distillery. So I was like, Batman. I hate him. <laughs> Why can't I go there? The rum one was some adventure because, um, like, so Addy Chin has done all the photography for my books, and um, you know Addy obviously, and he's a, he's a, an amazing uh, drinks industry photographer here in the UK. And um, when it came to the rum book, um, such was the extent of the travel requirements to get to all the distilleries. Because um, I think it's about 50-odd distilleries. My publisher decided there just wasn't budget for two people. And I, they were like, look, we're, we can't do the book because we can't send two people. And I was like, you know, I'll break the news to Addy and I'll just go. I mean, bless Addy, I love him and I've travelled a lot with him to do these books. But um, I have to say, travelling on your own around the Caribbean is a lot of fun. Um, it's a totally different thing. Oh, because, yeah. You, 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 you're sat at bars just drumming up conversation with random strangers, like a bit of a lunatic, you know, and you get to meet people that you never would have spoken to. Look, my best trips have been when I've been by myself. Because mm. you just talk to randoms and you have to. Some of the best friends I've made in my life have been just picking up a random and chatting. Yeah, yeah. it's so true. Um, I was in, in Poland a few weeks ago and was putting something on Instagram and a random Polish guy who I'd met in... I think it was Martinique, spent one night with him, like just having a few drinks, messaged me saying, oh, I see you're in Poland. Do you want to meet up for a drink? This is like five years ago. Amazing. You know? And it's like that connection that you just, you just don't make it when you're traveling with someone else. And sure, you can make great memories traveling with a companion or a group or whatever, but it's a different thing altogether when you're on your own. Uh hundred percent. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm desperate. I'm desperate to do more of the Caribbean islands and, and, you know, explore a lot more. And yeah, I think probably in the end I will end up doing it by myself because uh, my poor partner does not want to be dragged around distilleries for <laughs> hours on end. Um, so yeah, you know, I think it's, it's, it's all part of the excitement of kind of that discovery is, is not just, and, and people always think of the distillery as being just the kind of still or, you know, we, no one talks about fermentation enough, which is one of my other passions in life. Um, but, you know, also no one talks about the people and the people are what make the product and the culture is what makes yeah. the product. You, you can't talk about it in exclusivity. You know, you can't say, okay, everything from space out tastes like space out. Yeah, right. You know, it's about the different distilleries, what they're doing, their history, the people that are behind them, you know, like, and we have such incredible, especially in Scotland, you know, such incredible distillers that have been going for so long, you know, that have handed down, um, you know, are now starting to hand down their knowledge. But yeah, I think you've got to understand the culture, the history, the people, the food. You can't go to an Italian wine region and not understand the food. Yeah. Mm. What the hell? What have you been doing? <laughs> I think the I think culture and food is a biggie um, because that is what sort of sets the parameters on what we what we like, what we taste, what feels like it tastes good to us. And so when you ask someone from you know southern Italy to make a whiskey that tastes great to them, it's going to taste differently, even if given the same ingredients and equipment, to someone from you know Chile or, or Thailand because they have you know, a different kind of perception of what tastes good and what, you know, what tastes bad and what they like. 
And that is what is so cool about spirits and, and wine, I guess, and beer is that you, you know, you move it around the world and the rules change a little bit on what it, what, what, what constitutes good, what constitutes delicious. And you can taste that in the product. Like when you, you know, when you taste whiskeys from Japan and they have, you know, that certain sort of, uh, almost like incense quality to them and that depth, you know, that's something that presumably is desirable to a Japanese palate or at least to the palates of the people that make that whiskey. Um, and that, that, so that's there for a reason. And it's not about the ingredients necessarily. It's about what they like. And it's interesting, I mean, I've just taken on a rum from Taiwan and, you know, when I first tasted it, it was incredible rum. I'm so excited to launch it, it's untrue. But, you know, I think I tasted that and then I, you know, Cavalan Distillery and you, I can see the synergies between them. Mm. You know, and, and part of that's going to be that sort of really humid temperature and that that quite kind of intense aging process that's happening over there. It's you know, thirteen percent angel share is a huge amount, yeah, and humidity. So thirteen percent angel share, which is huge. That's um, what I'm saying, yeah. But you know, and I think, yeah, you do. You start seeing these sort of things, and I'm I, I'm looking at a little bit of Australia, Australia and Australian whiskey at the moment, and there's definitely. Uh, a style that's coming out but then that's also quite exciting because it means that actually you then can start looking at, at sort of flavor in, in whiskey or in rum or whatever and start trying to give it some sense of sort of comprehension to a, a, a consumer because you know that's that's kind of how what we have to get to is to be able to describe products in a in a way that a customer knows because i mean most customers they just want to know what it tastes like and does it taste like something they like, you know? And, and I think that's, that's what's quite interesting. And, and uh, well, when I was doing my Master of Wine, I actually really would, would have loved to have done my thesis on how culture affects your taste and, and how you perceive flavour, which, but apparently that was going to take me like 10 and a half years and I'd already been doing it for seven years, so I figured that yeah. it was enough. <laughs> so I did something super easy instead. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a book, uh, not a not a uh, MW thesis. There, there is a book in no, that for sure. Not. Um, but uh, so, okay, we're talking a little bit about spirits and things. Do you want to um, tell us what you're doing currently, what your current role is, and and how that's going? So, I'm the head buyer for the whiskey exchange, also to the trade known as Speciality Drinks. Um, I kind of Sekinda and I had been chatting for a long time actually I'll never forget when Sakinda I always tell this story but I think it's quite entertaining um, so when Sakinda first came to visit me at Selfridges he was really grumpy because he'd been to visit the Selfridges buyer a few times um, before me previously and they just ignored all his products and weren't interested and so he'd wasted his time and Sakinda does not like to waste his time um, and he came to visit me and he was grumpy Sakinda and uh, he he sat there and looked sort of look on his face and Adriana was chatting away to me and and he goes and suddenly I, I was really excited by the products he was putting in front of me and, and the minute Sakinda saw that little spark of excitement he was off and from that moment on we became very very firm friends and you know we we spent a lot of time talking about how we would work together and we had great ideas to turn Vinopolis into this incredible cult center of learning and they sold it to some developers very dull <laughs> um and then we were sort of chatting away because you know one time he approached me he goes look we need a buyer um would you like to come on board and you know i thought 
well, if I was going to leave the best job in the world, which was Selfridges, I might as well go to the second best or the first best job in the world after, which was um, definitely working with Segunda. And the only thing I was nervous about was leaving wine because, you know, first and foremost, my, my passion is wine. And I went and I said, OK, if I can do wine, I'll come. Um, and, you know, and I came and I'm, you know, it's been a learning curve ever since. It's been incredible. And Sakinda and Rajbir are incredible people. You know, they have such a wealth of knowledge in the industry. Uh, Sakinda has taught me a lot about whiskey. I, I've been so lucky to be able to kind of have learned so much about whiskey from him and now like developing yeah. sort of these sort of stronger relationships with distillers and, and people worldwide actually is, it's been really, really exciting. And it's, it's a job I, I love, you know, now I'm working. So I also, as, as well as doing all the buying for the, the company, I also run the shop teams um, and I run the events team. So, you know, for me doing the, the shops are incredible. My team are absolutely awesome. Get into the shops. They have so much knowledge. It's, it's insane. You know, that's customer service 101. Um, and the, the events doing those has been such a blast. I mean, whiskey show kills me every year, but I absolutely adore it. So what, so which events have you got on the roster, uh, these days? Do you want to just run through them? So we have, we have now got five events. Um, we started with whiskey show. Um, and then when I came on board, we then started, Sagan and I had a bit of a chat we love cognac. And he was like, do you think we could do a cognac show? So like, it's very unsexy. I was like, but I'd love to do one. So, we're, mm. you know, me and Skinner love a challenge. So we launched Cognac Show. Um, and then, of course, we launched... Uh, so Cognac Show is normally in April. Then we launched Old and Rare, which was our whiskey show dedicated to Old and Rare Spirits because Kinda, of course, has an amazing collection and he has a, a wealth of knowledge of people that also have amazing collections. So we're that's in February. That won't be physical this year. That will only be virtual. Uh, of course, then it's Cognac Show, and then um, Champagne Show came next because I love champagne, and any excuse to drink champagne is on my radar. And we actually have the biggest selection of champagne online in the UK, which not really? many people know. Um, yeah, because champagne is definitely a passion of both mine and Skinders. So that's always sort of end of October, beginning of November. And this year, um, we launched Rum Show uh, at the end of July, and will be physical this year. So hugely excited to have that coming on board because that's again as I say something I'm passionate about do I would love to do an aperitivo show as well but I think my um, my events team might murder me if I give them any more shows just at the moment so quite a few and we do trade and consumer on those yeah and I remember last actually was it last year was it year before it's going back now isn't it the the black top uh, day which was awesome because were you broadcasting how many hours did you do that for so Mitch Wilson and myself did 24 hours up. Of we live did stream. not sleep. Of live stream. Yeah. It was a hardcore, but it was probably one of the funnest things I've ever done. And Mitch and I are a little crazy and we we have these really crazy ideas and everyone's like, no, you can't do that. And then Mitch and I are like, well, why not? <laughs> it sounds like a great idea to us. So this was, to, for anyone who's not aware, this was to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Black Top day which was the final navy rum ration administered on on a navy ship which was it 31st of july 1970 yeah yeah 70 yeah um yeah. Uh, the 11th hour um yeah and it, i mean we had such a blast so of course you and craig came on which was absolutely hysterical and still one of my favorite moments of the show 
<laughs> with a flag yeah. in a very old... I, well, you had a flag in of the, one of the original rums as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, so I managed to, some years ago, acquire a flagon. I think they're an imperial gallon, aren't they? Something like that. It's, yeah, it's about three or four so. litres anyway um, of, of, of Navy rum, which I think was bottled in 1954. And um, I, I think I bought it about 10 years ago. And I'd always said... Oh, I've still got it in 10 years when it's the anniversary of Black Tot Day. I'll crack it open that day and then, you know, just give it out. And, and lo and behold, I, by that point, I owned a rum bar down here in Cornwall where I live. And so I was like, well, this is great because I can crack it. We'll sell it and we'll donate some of the profit to charity or whatever. And then you guys were doing this Black Tot Day celebration thing. So we, my, me, myself and... Um, Craig Harper from the gin episode, but a very good uh, mutual friend of both Dawn and I decided. So we, we elected to make daiquiris using this rum, <laughs> which is, I'm trying to think of a kind of analogy that you, you could, well, I don't know. It's definitely, you know, not perhaps the, the, the most obvious use case for, um, you know, <laughs> for a 70 year old rum. Um, and uh, we, we broadcast, we, we joined your live stream, didn't we? And uh, made these daiquiris yeah. live on the beach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was absolutely hysterical still still a favorite moment i mean and there were so many favorite moments of that yeah. 24 hours and i you know and i think it, it was kind of i think there was moments during these lockdown periods when we did whiskey show and i almost killed dave broom by making him do about 20 something um chats and talks over eight days seven days <laughs> uh you know there's things like that which i think have been absolutely incredible that we've done that have kind of been sort of so future and forward thinking and just kind of seize the moment and i'm hugely proud of my teams i have the best teams in the world so what is it like working for sakinda and raj because you know they are um an incredible force in the industry here in in the uk um for anyone who's you know international who's who's not aware of of them then you know they've from really almost nothing established what i would say is you know the one of the best if not the best online whiskey uh websites uh out there but also become an incredible part of the on trade here in the uk supplying you know the best bars and restaurants around the country um with you know an enormous range of products um that uh, and doing it you know at now huge scale um but not only that, they're just lovely people and, you know, incredible. Um, I mean, Sekinder's collection of whiskey is, um, if not the best in the world, then the second best, but certainly up there, right, as, as one of. I mean, I've, I've seen it a few times and, yeah, and, and it's amazing. So, you know, what's it like being, sort of being, you know, inside that, that machine um, and being part of it? I think I always say that me, you know, Raj, like family, um, we fight a lot. Like three very strong-willed people um, who are, you know, incredibly driven and incredibly hardworking. I mean, they work a lot, a, a hell of a lot. Um, and I'm pretty close behind them in terms of the volume of work I do. But, you know, I think it, there's a lot of passion here. And when you have passionate people, and Skinner, not many people say no to Skinner, but I'm very good at saying no. And, you know, we, we, we have this great relationship where we'll just like shout at each other, we'll be going at each other. And then the next thing we'll be like, oh, did you try that amazing product? And, you know, we'll be best friends again. And, <laughs> and I think that's, it's, 
it's quite a challenging relationship. Um, I won't say it's been the easiest, but it's also been one of, you know, hugely rewarding in terms of learning and just kind of, you know, getting an opportunity to work with these two brothers who, you know, have really got so much depth of knowledge and, and stuff like that. And I think we've probably both learned a lot from each other. Um, yeah, I think we've been in the industry similar timeframes, actually, scarily enough. Um, and, you know, and I think that's what's been so the amount I've learned from them, I would say, is the thing that I, I sort of most am thankful for them. And, you know, for giving me an opportunity. And I, I didn't have a clue, you know, like, I'm a buyer that's terrible at maths, you know, it's like, it's like I'm, I'm Roger, like math geniuses. You know, so it's, it's been a really interesting learning curve for me. Um, and, you know, it hasn't been easy, but it's also been a barrel of laughs. So it's, it's that kind of, a bit of that kind of, you know, tough times, but amazing times. So the highs and the lows are definitely extreme. <laughs> cool. Well, look, um, let's start rounding this up. What, so what's next? What's the future hold for you? I don't know. I mean, we, as most people know, Perna Rica has just bought us. Um, so I guess I'm a bit of a wait and see at the moment. Uh, nothing should change, but you know, like anything, when you have a, a change in anything, you, you have to just wait and see and, and see what the future holds. But, you know, I think for me, it's about kind of, I want to build my knowledge. I, you know, I still have so much to learn. I haven't even started um, learning. And, you know, so I, I think for me, I, I really want to concentrate on getting out there again and talking and tasting and doing a lot more distillery visits and things like that, which I've kind of, I guess I put aside for the last couple of years because I've just been working so hard on everything. Um, but yeah, you know, I think we're, we're going to expand my team. So the buying team, we're going to bring a couple more buyers in just because uh, myself and Assis are struggling uh, <laughs> to keep up with everything. Uh, and yeah, just kind of sort of focus on the next sort of 12 months and, and kind of really start sort of seeing what the world's going to hold, sort of where we're coming out. And I think I'm excited to see, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation coming through uh, over the next couple of years, there's some amazing product out there from some great producers that are they're really doing some great stuff. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see what the, the world has to offer. Um, but yeah, who knows is what the future is. <laughs> you, I, I know you say you've been like, because you've been sort of had a, a love affair with rum a lot recently, I think. Is it when you when you you know looking for new spirits to explore and things? Are you are you wanting to continue more down that path, or are there other spirit categories, or liqueurs, or something that is sort of piquing your interest, like pisco or something like that? I don't know. Pisco at the moment, yeah, I, I think pisco is going to be the next big thing. I, I really firmly believe it. Um, so I'm really watching pisco quite closely. Uh, I think it has real opportunity. Mm. Vodka, I think, is going to come make a comeback. Um, I'm very interested to see what's mm -hmm. going to happen with vodka. Uh, we're looking at vodka as a category. Um, I think cachaca could be quite interesting. Definitely white rum. Um, mm. I think these these white spirits, something's got to replace gin. And I think there's a few of them sort of queuing up to kind of take on that mantle. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's, there's something very interesting about sort of grape-based spirits, definitely. Um, they're just, just waiting in the wings. But, you know, I, 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 I think for me, in terms of brown spirits, I think definitely we're looking at a really exciting time for world whiskies. Uh, I think there's 
some, I mean, I've been tasting some great stuff from New Zealand, from Australia, from America, uh, of course, the UK. Um, so I think that it's that time where suddenly gin is going to go backwards, hopefully a little bit, uh, or not backwards, but tail off and just allow. I love that we've gone full we circle have. back, back, <laughs> back to, to gin, gin again. Bashing. This is it. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> back to gin bashing, just like the start. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting categories out there. But no, I, I agree with you. Uh, yeah. So I yeah. hope we'll see a lot more diversity cool. in what we drink. And I think that's what the pandemic has done, actually. It's given consumers a lot more knowledge. It's given them a sense of adventure when they're drinking. And, and I think that's a huge opportunity for all of us, whether we're in bars and buying. You know, and, and also, I think we're going to have to look a lot about sustainability, bottle weight, I think it's going to, for me, is becoming more and more of an issue. I'm now starting to challenge brands back on their bottle weights, um, sustainability and who I'm buying from. I think it, it's all very, very sort of something that I feel is very passionate about and it has to be the future of our industry. Well, that almost sounds like the start of another podcast there, but we'll have to leave it for another time because there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to unpack with sustainability. Um, cool. Look, Dawn... Thanks so much for coming on. Um, I have some quickfire questions for you before you go um, that we ask to ask to many guests. You, you, you can give a one word answer or you can more, more likely elaborate. Um, and, um, <laughs> what are you saying, Tristan? <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but the point is it's quickfire, right? So you need to kind of get in there fast. Okay, um, question one. You can only drink one cocktail for the rest of your life. What is it? Daiquiri. Daiquiri, yeah. Uh, question two, the sort of reverse. One cocktail that you never, ever want to see or hear from ever again. Bury it. Oh, multiple screaming orgasm. <laughs> That's an old TFI Fridays <laughs> one, which was just disgusting. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, it's a, it's a, the, obviously that sort of family of orgasm drinks are yeah. well known, but I don't think that can kind of create a mental sort of image of what that actually oh, tasted like. I know I've had one before. Just gross. <laughs> just too sweet. <laughs> that's that's um, like a childhood bad one, you know, when you've had something when you were a teenager yeah. and it's like, oh. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, one bar that you're going to be sat in for the rest of your life, perched on the bar stool. That's the hardest question ever. Do you know what? I if if Quaint could reopen, I really love that bar. I, I think it's just okay. it. I, I had so many good times there, so yeah, definitely. I think that yeah. that for me at the moment, but that could change in like five minutes because I'd love to sit in many bars <laughs> yeah. for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then final question. So you are your bartending. Um, just daiquiris and negronis on the menu, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> for people. And, and uh, um, you are you're permitted a sort of barback or a wingman or woman. Um, it can be anyone. It doesn't need, it doesn't even need to be a bartender. It could be like a celebrity or like a fictional character, anyone at all. But they've got your back. Who is it going to be? It's got to be Mitch Wilson. He's my partner in crime when it comes to anything drinking at the moment. And you know, we've had such nice. a, a, a huge laugh over the last two years. And, you know, we are just hysterical together. So I think for purely for entertainment's sake, for our own entertainment's sake, yeah, Mitch Wilson. <laughs> 
And maybe he's got more to, than just daiquiris and Negronis to his repertoire as well. Oh, no, so that'd be, probably not. That'd be I don't good. think he can make a Negroni. I think he'd just make daiquiris. <laughs> Apparently he was a really poor bar back at Trailer, so I'm not sure about that. Oh, <laughs> uh, great. Cool. Dawn, thanks so much. That was that was awesome. It was great chatting to you. Yeah, thank you. And um, let's uh, let's. I want to see your face and get a hug from you. Uh, oh, next time. absolutely. Well, come on, come up to London with Craig next time, and we'll, we'll have some cocktails and some wine. Definitely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bar Chat. We really hope that you enjoyed it. And if you haven't already, make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. It's free. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events and inspiration and subscribe to get it emailed to you.